Welcome to Community of Resistance, the podcast where I speak with people who do the work of resisting the empire to try to give folks who are interested in activism and advocacy the kinds of practical tools they need to pursue justice and peace. I'm Derek Penwell, and on today's show, I'm lucky enough to be speaking to my friend Nicole Harden. Nicole's a minister seeking ordination in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ and currently worships at Douglas Boulevard Christian Church under the care of her awesome pastor, Derek Penwell. I didn't write that, but I'm not above reading it. Nicole has a background in political science and social justice work, having been raised in a union household with her father being a retired union executive locally. She does community organizing and activism work across several organizations, including participation and work in anti-racist pro-reconciliation team within her current denomination, Black Lives Matter Louisville, and serving on the board of nonprofit Mission Behind Bars and Beyond, and strategizing local coalition work among Social Justice Louisville. Nicole considers herself a social justice minister and serves ecumenically in that capacity, both in word and in deed, most recently being invited to the Interdenominational Ministerial Coalition locally and participating in various education opportunities at her seminary alma mater, Louisville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And I, I, it is important for me to point out that, in my humble estimation, Nicole Harden is a social justice ninja. <laughs> And so I'm really excited to to have her on today and to be able to talk to her about some things that I think are, are going to be really interesting for, for folks they don't have much experience with. So welcome, Nicole. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And I'm totally stealing Social Justice Ninja <laughs> as a part of my bio that's going in now. So. Absolutely. That should be on your CV from here on out. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, so tell us just a little bit about how it is you got interested and and ultimately committed to the work of social justice. Yeah, you know, like a, in the bio you read, I would have to give the majority of that credit to being raised in a union household with my father. Mm-hmm. You know, we learned really early in life that uh, there are going to be times that you're going to have to stand up for things that uh, aren't comfortable for a lot of people that are outside of the norm that might not be necessarily the rules as they stand. Mm -hmm. And when you come across those situations, you know, uh, my dad always told us that we have to do the right thing. Mm. And it's not just doing the right thing when it's easy or when it's in fashion, I mean, you especially have to do the right thing when it's hard to do it. So social justice work has been uh, a part of my life since I was a very small child. Yeah, that comes across in in the way that you speak and the things that you're interested in and, and the causes that you fight for. What I wanted to talk to you about today is the issue of how to organize a protest. And it's probably important to make the distinction between a protest and a rally or a, a march. How would you define that difference? I think just uh, your initial question to me about um, social justice work, justice work is a little bit disobedient. Mm. You know, when you are seeking justice, there has been a wrong mm -hmm. and very frequently that wrong might even be a societal norm. And so there's this like disobedience to something that everybody's going along with. And so for me, that's what 
protest is. You know, like a march or a rally, oftentimes, you know, you could get a permit. Right. It can be, you know, like a happy affair with uh, no risk of being arrested or put on a list somewhere and have a file. Those types of things are accepted Mm -hmm. and expected in some way. But protest is that kind of radical shift. Um, You know, it it is arresting. It is uh, really jarring in a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. It, It comes with a lot of vitriol and a lot of ire that, you know, like rallies or marches don't usually come with. I, I recall Martin Luther King talking about it as the, the community of the creatively maladjusted. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. <laughs> that there's some sense in which you have laws that are unjust, which he would say, following Augustine, are not laws at all, because no law that is unjust deserves to be called a law or deserves to be respected, obeyed, I guess. Yeah, you know, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. also <laughs> said that riots are are the language of the unheard. Exactly. And, uh, you know, it, it's that same thought that there, there will come a point when, you know, the oppression is so great that, it, you know, it's not going to be like a rally or a march. It will be an all-out pr- protest. Mm-hmm. How do you decide what the threshold is for engaging in civil disobedience? I mean, what kinds of issues do, do you think about that beforehand and say, when it gets to this point, then, you know, all hell breaks loose? Or is it something that you sort of feel your way into based on the atmosphere and the environment? How do you, how do you make those determinations? I really like that question because I think a lot of people right now are being faced with that exact question. Like, at what point does there need to be like radical intervention? Right. Have we reached a point yet where um, maybe civil disobedience is the way that it needs to be? I think for me, uh, but I've also been doing this a long time. Yeah, I have to give that caveat. Mm-hmm. For me, civil disobedience became a way of life, mm-hmm. like a way of daily life. I feel like you can't just decide to jump into like the senior seminar, mm, you know, right. there is a, or if you do, you risk great danger mm-hmm. <laughs> to yourself. I think for me, it came in a lot of all of the little ways that my parents raised my sister and I to walk through this earth. So that means, you know, you stand up for the kids that are being bullied in your class, mm. or if someone's sitting at the lunch table alone, you go and sit next to them. Or, you know, you see like the social media videos that get, you know, circulating around where someone will be at Walmart and they're being accosted because they don't speak English primarily or will be on a subway or on a train somewhere and someone is accosting them for their sexuality or their ethnicity or, you know, whatever (laughs) in you'll see that in mass, most of the people present ignore it. We kind of have these societal norms that we don't get involved in things that aren't directly touching us. And, you know, that is an act of civil disobedience to just stand up and say, even to a complete stranger who is accosting another stranger, to just say, you know, "Uh, we're not going to do that. That's not acceptable. Um, Yeah. So for me, it, it is easier to start there because you begin to change like the, the mapping of your mind. Uh-huh. The way I hear you talk about it, uh, civil disobedience isn't just a discrete action at a particular point in time. It is a way of aligning yourself 
with the forces of justice against the forces of injustice and oppression. And, and that, that takes a kind of day-to-day commitment to that life, that posture. I, I like that, that you just can't it's like one day wake up and say, you know, I think I'm going to be Martin Luther King Jr. today. That comes with a lot of, uh, you have to cultivate the habit of civil disobedience. I really like that a lot. How does that fit in with your faith? I mean, because you're also a minister, how is protest an expression of your vision of the gospel? Protest and the gospel are synonymous to me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I feel like the gospel message is completely countercultural. It is liberation theology. It is, you know, like radical loving of the other, even more so than you love yourself. Mm Uh, even up into extreme ends, you know, up into uh, risky behavior, up into things that'll get you in trouble with people in high places and, um, you know, for Jesus up until death. Yes. You know, there are costs affiliated with social justice work. And I think that that is the the whole cornerstone of my faith. So it's very realized. It's very much about a commitment that, uh, you know, I'm supposed to be doing a work here on this earth to radically love people intentionally. And I think about, you know, like the, the beloved community and, you know, how we name communities and how different that is from the way that Jesus named community. You know, Jesus found community in people that were regularly excommunicated. Yes. From community. And, you know, that was Jesus's community. And so that is everything to me as a minister. You know, I just don't know how to divorce the two. <laughs> I guess for me, that is the ultimate discipleship to try to do that. So you would you would take Jesus as a model for how it is you approach your work in social justice? Oh, yeah, 100 percent. You know, uh, I just feel like there's so much, you know, like over and over again, if you if you go through the gospel, you'll see Jesus coming and standing in between angry mobs of people that would, you know, seek to stone a woman who they believe was doing an act that is not socially acceptable. And you you see time and time again how Jesus will come and stand in between a, a victim of oppression and vitriol and, you know, be willing to stand in that gap and stop it. You know, those are the important things, at least with, you know, my reading of the gospel, those are the things um, that resonate with me um, that really, like, move my feet. You know, that's those are the things that make my heart burn. Yeah, I'm convinced that Protestant Christianity has done a disservice to the story of Jesus in as much as it's understood Jesus as kind of a spiritual leader, that mm-hmm. everything he's about is somehow offering us access to the next world, life after death. That's where Jesus' emphasis is. And yet, I mean, it's pretty clear if you do the background work on the culture and the socioeconomic conditions mm-hmm. of Galilee and Judea at that time, the things that he's really upset about are things that negatively negatively impact the peasants and the uh, artisans of his day, the, the people from whom he came. And he's he's always sort of raising awareness about or challenging a system that would keep those people economically destitute and marginalized. And that's not an unspiritual thing, but it certainly recasts Jesus in a 
different light from the way I kind of grew up thinking about him. I feel like people usually fall into one of two camps. You know, it's either like a very high spiritual Jesus and we're really concerned with, you know, the other side Mm -hmm. and life after this life Mm -hmm. or what happens after this life. And then, you know, there's another camp that is very rooted in the works of their hands and their feet in transforming current society. Mm -hmm. For sure, I think I was raised probably a lot the same way that you were, you know, there was a very distant and or, or other and othering, you know, like a, not for this place, but for another place right. where we hold Jesus very, very, very high. And for me, it, it really began resonating with me a lot in seminary, actually, uh-huh. about how powerful it is to find Jesus inside of the people that walk around on this earth, even not, I mean, when I say Jesus, I mean, even just God in general, just the eternal, just the eternal spark mm-hmm. inside of people that walk around on this earth. And, you know, I just think it's such a disservice to be unconcerned with the suffering of this earth. The Gospels themselves make much more sense to me now when I understand Jesus to be constantly challenging the political systems of his time mm-hmm. on behalf of the people who don't have any recourse to have their grievances heard. But this work that you're involved with comes at something of a cost, right? Mm-hmm. How do you persist in the face of the opposition and bigotry that is too often directed against the work for racial justice? That is a very difficult question. I think my biggest advice would be something that I probably only learned within the last two years. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Because honestly, you know, prior to two years ago, it wasn't with uh, the exhaustion that I feel it now. Mm-hmm. But when you engage in protest or if you really want to engage in kind of like radical liberation work, you should enter it understanding that these types of systems, and, and they are systems, it's never really individual people. Right. These types of systems don't fall without heavy resistance. And I think you really underestimate how traumatic it can be to have the weight of entire, you know, whether it's a police force or whether it's any other sort of institution that wants to bear down on you Mm -hmm. to really feel the weight of that. And even if it's other, if it's a hate group, if it's whether or not you're getting doxxed or followed or the types of things that come along with standing up, you really don't know how much it'll wear you down until you're already there. Right. (laughs) And then you're just like, oh. And so, you know, my honest answer to that kind of a question is you just have to, you know, when you get there, you have to be okay with stopping Mm -hmm. and allowing yourself healing space. It's really probably better to have some healing measures in place as you're walking along with this. Sure. (laughs) You know, don't wait till the tank is empty. You don't don't want to sort of wake wake up up from some some long hangover hangover of (laughs) indignation and, and, and find that you got nothing left. And it's so easy to not do that. You know, it's so easy to really get in a pattern of crisis mode. And so, you know, you get into crisis mode, something horrible happens, and then 
the adrenaline gets pumping and the cortisol is dumped in and you can ride that wave <laughs> until like your body will give out underneath you. Oh and yeah. At some point you will realize how much in a deficit you are. So it's really important. Some days I'll just be like, Hey, you know what? I'm turning my phone off everybody. <laughs> Sure. I mean, like, if it's a real emergency, somebody better come to my house and get me because <laughs> <laughs> I have zero capacity right now. <laughs> and, you know, I just have to turn the phone off and, like, lay in the bed or color or listen to music or go to a park. It's really restorative for me to go to uh, places in nature and uh-huh. specifically places with water. I don't know. I mean, that's just the thing for me, mm-hmm. but it is. And it's really important. Uh, that's why I love the work that I've done with uh, BLM Louisville. They're very intentional about healing space. And mm. I don't care uh, what meeting it is. I know that there's going to be coffee and tea and food <laughs> And we are going to fellowship for the first half an hour at least. And we'll probably laugh until we cry at some point. And it is very restorative. Yeah. I mean, you just can't drive a hundred miles an hour all the time. (laughs) Yeah. I've given that some thought just because some of the work that I do also is, can be pretty draining. And, And I've realized about myself that the way that I draw motivation to do that work, especially because I'm, I'm pretty introverted and it's not easy for me that what sort of fuels my drive, the passion for this work is anger. I get angry. I I, I become indignant about situations that I just think Mm -hmm. are unjust or where somebody's obviously getting a bad rap, but there is a cost associated with that kind of fuel. It can, it's important, but but if that's all you feel, it burns away all the, so much of the other good stuff about life, about what would be there after you get everything done that should be done and everything's perfect. You got nothing left to live in that space. You've so assiduously created. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're talking about this this work in terms of the kind of personal cost that it can exact from you, and what's necessary to be able to continue to do it is the self awareness to know that you're running on empty, and and you need time to step mm-hmm. back and let somebody else carry the weight for a while. I mean, you do. You have to. Yes. Re- like really realize that you're a whole human. <laughs> And there's this thing about humanity that, you know, we like to really pigeonhole ourselves into our identities, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I feel like so many, especially like women of color, we are mm-hmm. categorized and stereotyped as like the strong. You know, we are like the load bearers. We will endure and always endure. And um, it becomes expectation and then it becomes a narrative. And, you know, you just have that expectation of yourself. Like, well, I am just long suffering and I can do this and I will keep doing it. And then when everybody else quits and the other people get angry (laughs) and walk off the scene, I will still keep doing it. And It is uh, really difficult to be, you know, you have to be intentional about it. You have to be intentional and have accountability partners that Mm. will say to you, you know, like, have Mm -hmm. you drank water today? 
did you eat today? (laughs) I mean, I have several of my friends that are accountable to me in that way. And I try to be accountable to them because you'll see across the country, it doesn't get nearly enough coverage as it should. um, The amount of activists that end up dying to suicide. That is alarmingly frequent. Yeah, the despair can really set in because we're, I mean, you, you get you get into this work because you want to see change made. And if it doesn't come or if it comes too slowly, it can feel like everything that you've poured yourself into has been meaningless. I mean, I can I can see how people who are much more intensely involved th- than I am can look at the work and say, I just can't, I got nothing left to give. It, it uh. is rough. So, uh, you know, you have to find joy. You know, you have to really be intentional about seeking joy and embracing your humanity. Such wonderful insight into this work. Let me ask you to think along another path, walk along another path. And this is more practical in nature. How do you, when you are preparing for a protest or something like that, how do you begin to train protesters who don't have much experience in this work to keep them safe? How do you, how do you help them understand what's safe? That is a huge topic that needs to be uh, addressed because I think, one, there's a lot of fear around civil disobedience. And I really think you could take this, and I know we keep invoking the name of uh, Mm -hmm. Martin Luther King, but I think it's pertinent, especially, you know, at the 50 year anniversary of his assassination, you know, it is very intentional. And I think intentionality has to be the name of the game when you want to engage this kind of work. Um, I think of how Dr. King and all of the civil rights activists of the sixties would go down in basements and learn how to civilly Mm -hmm. disobey, which includes, you know, how to be arrested, how to take Mm. a hit, how to endure people spitting on you or throwing things on you, or they would sit down there and accost each other intentionally so that there is no surprise to you, whether you have to learn how to mentally overcome what's physically happening to you to be able to have resolve or, you know, I I just think you have to be intentional about evaluating what you're trying to do in Mm -hmm. the protest and evaluating the risk that is there. And then being really honest with everyone there. You don't want anyone coming in thinking this is going to be like a parade and you know that you're going to draw the kind of attention, you know, that might end up with people being arrested or that might end up with there being physical violence. Yeah, one of the one of the direct actions trainings that I was a part of, they sort of split people up into two groups and one group that I was in was supposed to stand there and and then the other group just came and they just started screaming, at, you know, mm-hmm. about what a horrible person you are. I mean, there's some really awful things, mm-hmm. but to give you some sense, of, to give us some sense of what it is that is possible in a situation like that. Do you have certain things that you tell people to do if they are arrested or um, if if they have, if they do experience confrontation, physical violence? What, what are some things that people need to know? I think it definitely depends on who you're organizing with. There should be an expectation 
or at least the conversation around the risk of being mm-hmm. arrested and understanding and identifying the people who are intentionally willing mm-hmm. to be arrested. I think there needs to be intentionality around the people that are willing to take mm-hmm. a hit and identifying who in the room are these people and then being able to identify what are the resources that you have. I think different groups have different sets of resources. Like what? Um, you know, like what? there there could be attorneys that would be available. You know, there could be other support organizations that have offered services, you know, when they know that certain protests are going on. And it, it really comes down to whoever is organizing the protest really needs to be aware of what's in the room, what is the expectation to happen, what are the resources available, and then making sure that everyone is on the same page with whatever they're going to do. I mean, there's all sorts of intricate details to protesting that I probably wouldn't get in, yeah. <laughs> get too uh, specific with because uh, the empire. Yeah, yeah. Uh, say a word about that as to why you are reluctant to give away tactics, I guess, is a way of saying it. As uh, committed as we are in studying and trying to prepare for uh, whatever comes our way, equally on the other side, there are people that are committed to uh, breaking down a protest. They're committed Mm. to crushing any type of uprising. And I wouldn't ever really want to give away any kind of tactics Mm -hmm. that would be there (laughs) um, to try to prevent from being uh, completely squashed. But I I would just, for anyone who's seeking, you know, to get involved in protesting, my, my biggest advice would be to go towards whomever in your community has been organizing protesting. Uh You know, we're really lucky in Louisville that we have a very active protest community. And, um, you know, we have a lot of various experience in that. Um, Other places, it might be harder to identify Mm -hmm. those groups, but then I think you could definitely reach out to groups in other cities um, that are aligned with the work that you do. If you know that they've protested and they could probably offer support. So it's important to, I think, for people who are listening to, to realize that there are folks on the other side of an issue who have a real interest in disrupting protests and they actively monitor the people who are involved in protest and civil disobedience, who, who are involved in social justice work at all. And, and they do a lot of research. Is that right? Oh, yeah. I mean, it is a nonstop 24 hour. It, it used to surprise me the amount of people that would walk up to me and know my name. And I tend not to, I mean, even though I'm a minister, (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, I actually don't get on the mic or on a megaphone. That Mm -hmm. almost never happens. That's just, uh, I'm an introvert (laughs) also with you. Uh I would rather not. But it is interesting to me, the amount of people that will walk up to me and make sure that I know that they know who I am and make sure that I know that they know where I've been or Mm. where they saw me or what they know that we're going to do. It is to, you know, it's without end. To to intimidate. Yeah. It it is always, there's always intimidation. You know, this type of thing doesn't uh, relinquish power 
easily. You know, if it was easy to wrestle power away from systems of oppression, then we'd all be free. A long time ago. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. What do you think is the most important thing? What's the most important thing you want to accomplish at a protest? Does it depend on the protest itself, uh, the issue, or the the situation? Or is there always sort of one thing that we we need to have accomplished at the end of the day? Uh, Protests, again, should be so uh, intentional. And you need to know what you want it to be. And it's easy for it to get away from you, especially if the issue at hand involves people across a vast array of demographics, (laughs) Mm-hmm. And a vast, like it could be going across classes, going across the race lines, going across, you know, all these different statuses of people. Um, people will show up to a protest with one thing in mind, and it might be completely different than the thing that you have in mind when you organize a protest. Right. And so uh, for me, protests can be so many things. You know, some people want to come in, they intend. Like I said, some people intend, I am willing to occupy this space up until the point that I'm arrested, Mm -hmm. you know, or other people will say, you know, I'm willing to, if it's disrupting a meeting or occupying a space or having a great show of solidarity, you know, there's so many solidarity protests where, you know, you occupy a street or a highway or an airport or, you know, whatever it is. Uh There are so many different uh, objectives to protest. Sometimes it's to show both the oppressed and the oppressor that there are people that are not willing to let this happen. Sometimes it is completely educational. Like, we will bring attention to this. There are things that would get buried under the media, like the continual slaughter of unarmed black people. Mm -hmm by the police force that could go a whole you know there's a 24-hour news cycle it could happen today be gone today and no one ever know about it and the a lot of times the only way that it's ever brought to light is because people have organized a protest around it so sometimes it's educational sometimes it is lament oh right Um, say a word about that you know you have to again embracing your humanity I think we do a really poor job of giving people the space to grieve. Mm. And when you have entire communities of people that are impoverished and literally going through different forms of genocide or enslavement, if you're talking about the prison industrial complex, (laughs) um, Uh The way that it decimates whole communities of people, it is so uh, dehumanizing to think that you expect people to endure this and not grieve, that you expect people to endure this and not be able to cry out and be present and witness the crying out of those people and be present and witness yourself crying out in that Mm. space and find healing there. You know, one of the things I've always found infuriating uh, when there is protest, whether it's educational or or it is a form of communal lament, is the extent to which the, the powers that be believe they have the right, perhaps even the responsibility, to tell people how they should protest, what it ought to look like and 
how loud it should be and how visible it should be and all, all that kind of stuff. But they, they, they want to sort of set constraints around what is acceptable protest. Mm-hmm. Do, do, you, do you run into that? I mean, do you, do you find that to be true? Oh, yeah. And that's why so much of it should be secret. And so much of it should be completely, uh, you know, away from those forces, because then you go into rally and march territory. <laughs> yeah. You know, then you go into a, this is, this actually is not a countercultural seizing of energy. You know what I mean? This is not... Mm-hmm forcing a stop or forcing people to see, then it becomes a different thing. You know, it becomes something sanctioned by the very people whom you are protesting against. Right. Um, And there is no, there is no power in that. You know, if you have police escorts at your protest, it's not a protest. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it, to the extent that protest is kind of domesticated, that it that it is contained within acceptable limits, it's not protest at all anymore. It's merely an endorsed form of speech, which is exactly what protest is supposed to be struggling against, right? Right, and you know, and I don't take anything away from. Uh, marches and rallies. I think that those are important steps on the way to protest. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been to several marches in Washington, D.C. Uh, and different rallies for certain issues um, because those are important in their own way. Um, but there is a different, I, I guess it's almost like one of those Kairos moments in time for me mm-hmm. is is what a protest represents. It's It's like the, the lightning that strikes down in this exact moment where the atmosphere just like split very suddenly, you know, this has to stop. So protest is by its very nature transgressive. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you get permission, it's not a protest. Right. Think about probably the, the, the most recent national attention paid to the football players who kneel during mm. the, the national anthem. And the irony of having people say, well, that's just not acceptable. And you want to say, well, that's the point, right? That, right. that if we did it in an acceptable way, it, you, nobody would ever have to pay attention. But this is a way of drawing attention to the fact that people are dying And nobody cares, or not nobody cares, but the people who should care the most about it apparently are able to live with it. And that's not something that we're able to live with. Mm -hmm. And it is so jarring. That's why it's a a protest. Uh, Mm -hmm. It is extremely jarring for people. You know, I I remember I was going to speak, and I was on the docket to speak at Metro Council about an issue. And they say the Pledge of Allegiance before the council oh, yeah. uh, takes their seat. And it was really interesting to be in that space. And, you know, everyone just uniformly stands up and they're all with their hands over their hearts and I'm sitting down. And instantly, I mean, like, you could cut the tension in the room. Like, oh, yeah. There was this, like, what is she doing? You know, and it, <laughs> and it really was like bearing down on me. And it's like, you guys, this is, this is the, this is the place where we talk to the people that we've elected about things that we have a problem with. And it really shouldn't be that foreign to you at this point that someone 
has a protest, but it is, it's so jarring because it is like, you know, everyone gets very used to compliance and that's the thing, you know, there are these laws, right. Um, and it goes back to standing up and doing what is right, especially when it's difficult. Right. And among the many words possible to use to describe Jesus, compliant wouldn't be one of them. And just because it's legal doesn't make it right. Just because this is the way that we do it doesn't make it right. And that's where you really have to hit that like moral compass, that that like compass inside of you where you're like, this isn't okay. So I'm going to stop doing this. So I'm not sure I've thought about it this way before, but does protest always come from a place of moral outrage, which is to say, is is it even possible to, to have a successful protest if you don't in some way occupy what you feel to be the moral high ground? I think that goes towards... Um, people's intention of when they come to a protest Mm -hmm. or their intention in the way that they protest. I think um, there definitely are people that will engage the activity of protests with an incorrect motive. And for me, I guess the incorrect motive is always going to be the willingness to leave some people unfree. Oh, right. And, you know, some people will engage in a protest just up until the point that they get what they want. Uh, I got mine. <laughs> right. And good luck, okay. guys. I'm out of here. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, that is something that is a recurring theme that uh, is exhausting and infuriating and, uh, you know, like utterly heartbreaking to experience. And so I do think that you can you can encompass and uh, be a part of or participate in a protest uh, and it really not be for like maybe an ultimate moral high ground. Not to say uh-huh. that the reason why you're there isn't also valid, but there's this way of when two opposing forces realize like for me, this is, this is the thing. So protest forces the break of a pattern of behavior. It pushes the behavior to stop. And then at Mm -hmm. that point, I mean, this is like the moment where it's like, well, we have gotten up from the table. We are no longer in commune with each other. And in that moment, both sides have to now negotiate what is the way that we now come back together. That tension is also a kind of creative necessity. Right. And what frequently happens is if this is, uh, you know, across multiple classes, races, ethnicities, sexualities, whatever, what will usually happen is the powers that be will offer a peace. They will offer a peace to one but not the others. Oh. And it becomes an issue when that offer is taken and then the rest are left to be collateral damage. Tell me, what are some pitfalls that should be avoided? I think in engaging protests, um, the biggest pitfall is to come in completely blind. You know, just to hear that there's a protest and then casually walk up to it without having any idea <laughs> what uh-huh. the point of it is and where it's going 
and what the intention is and, you know, what is, what is the goal? You know, what is the limit that we're pushing? What is the behavior that we're breaking? You know, I think that it's really wise to, you know, if you want to begin to engage protest, uh, the biggest pitfall to me is, um, you know, how almost like ignorance about what it is that you're getting ready to engage. And so, you know, show up to the things. If there's going to be a direct action training, show up to the training. If there's a call to discuss what's going to happen or a group that you can, you know, like a, a, a mass communication group of some sort, make sure that you're aware of what is intending to be accomplished with this protest. And, and when you're organizing a protest, what are what are some things that you, that you want to avoid as an organizer? Yeah. Organizing a protest, um, you really have to begin to be mindful about the people who are going to be there, the people that are going to show up and what they will need. You know, you have to be mindful about, I mean, if you're doing a protest in the middle of summer, are people going to be out there having heat strokes? You know, Yes. you know, do we need to tell them and identify people that they can go to if they're in distress, people that they can go to, you know, who are the leaders of the protest? Who are the ones that are going to be willing to put their bodies on the line in some way. And you really, there is a lot of work that goes into trying to pull that together and attend to the needs of the people that are going to be there. The biggest pitfall to me on either side, whether you're organizing it or participating it, is to just think that you can just show up. There has to be a great deal of intentionality and planning. Mm -hmm. Say a little bit more about the interplay between faith and politics. I think people that really engage that type of dialogue saying, you know, you know, my faith is one thing and my politics are another thing are people that I find have the most anemic ideas about the definition of community Mm -hmm. because it is very easy to other someone, you know, like my politics are, I want this, this, and this, because these are the things that benefit me. Right. And that has nothing to do with my faith. You know, my faith is separate. That's what I believe. And it's the God that I believe in or the way that I, you know, perform the rites of ritual or whatever. But my politics are <laughs> this, this, and this. And usually people that engage that sort of dialogue are those that really believe that their community is their family or the people that look like them or the people that worship like them. And they don't think that community has anything to do with faith. Yes, because community is always stretching the boundaries of people to include. Right. I mean, a community that is that is motivated by its commitment to Jesus, for example, is always concerned with figuring out how to invite people in as opposed to figuring out where to draw the line so that we can keep people out. Right. Well, Nicole, this has been a great discussion. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed uh, our time together here today. And I want to thank you for giving people an honest look at what it means to be involved in protest and what the kind of things that they need to think about what are the kind of things I need to think about before they dip a toe in this particular pool? Thank you so much. Yes, 
thank you for having me. This is amazing. Um, I'm so lucky to be able to call you my pastor and a friend and a comrade. And, uh, you know, we're going to keep doing the work. Thank you. I appreciate that very much. I want to thank my guest, Nicole Harden, Social Justice Ninja. And I want to thank you for tuning in to Community of Resistance. Until next time...